buddy. All right, good to, have, good to be here with you guys. Good to have you this morning. If you have your Bibles, grab them. Romans chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, and if you have your Bibles, uh, grab them because we're going to go through a lot of verses and they're not going to all be on the screen because i got a lot of screen stuff. And so it would be good to open an actual book. i got one up here if anybody needs it. Um, okay, so this morning uh, is a little bit um, uh, like a fire hose, okay, because uh, it, okay, it's a little bit like this. If you've ever been, uh, how many of you guys have been to like one of those Brazilian steakhouses? Oh, <laughs> oh, uh, those are my happy places, okay? But it's, and if you've not been to one, here's what happens. You sit down and they give you this little disc. And on one side it's green, on the other side it's red. And, and you sit down and if it's green, these guys come around with like whole hunks of meat on sticks. And they just start slicing it and putting it on your plate. And, and, and like, would you like filet? Would you like a leg of lamb? Would you like rib? You know, whatever. And they're just coming around. And as long as that thing's green, the meat just keeps piling up and piling up until you have the meat sweats and you want to go into a food coma. Uh, and, and there's a salad bar there, and I'm not sure why anyone ever does that. But, but you just go, and it just keeps coming and coming and coming. And that is Romans chapter 3. Okay. It's, so if you got a notebook, I told you I would get a notebook for Romans. It's time to start. We're going to be going fast. There's a lot. I got two points and 12 subpoints. Okay? So if you got your worship guide, you'll see a bunch of blanks. All right? So that's what's happening to us this morning. I hope you hold on because we got a lot, we got a lot to do. Some people have called Romans chapter 3 the epicenter of Paul's theology. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, said it is the chief point of the entire Bible. So, it's a lot. For the past three weeks, we have looked at the first two chapters of Romans. Um, Paul, piece by piece, building his argument. Remember, the whole book is an argument. Answering the question, why the gospel is the answer to all of life. And before Paul could really get to and talk about the good news, which we're going to begin to talk about this morning, he had to make sure we understood the bad news. Because without judgment, without wrath, God's love is cheapened and it really becomes sentimental. And a love that can't change our lives. So thankfully, that's not the kind of love God has for us. And so to sum up chapter 1, it was that everyone who is far from God uh, and has no idea who God is, if you never, if you live on an island, never heard who God is, is still guilty of sin, and they have no excuse on the judgment day before God. Um, and that we saw that what judgment looks like is that God gives people over, over to, to themselves. themselves. He, he says, says, you do whatever you want. And we, we run further and deeper into ourselves, destroying ourselves. ourselves. The most terrifying thing God can ever do for us is give us what we want. That was chapter one. Chapter two is that, hey, listen, religious people, maybe you thought chapter, you got excited about chapter one and you could wag your finger at all these people far from God. Well, I want to talk to you too, uh, that we, are, we live hypocritical lives. We respond to the kindness of God with the presumption of his grace, assuming he's going to be gracious and kind to us. And we're not living lives of repentance, which his kindness is meant to lead us to. Paul's point in chapter 2 is religion can never save you. Following the rules will only cause you to become an arrogant, prideful, guilty hypocrite. It was really encouraging. 
So to sum them both up, you cannot ever be good enough to deserve heaven. Everyone stands guilty before God, and everyone rightly deserves God's judgment uh, and hell. Chapter 3 now is really divided into two sections. The first half kind of sums up all of chapter 1 and chapter 2, and he kind of drives that point home. And the second half, he begins to unveil that despite how bad we are, despite the bad news, there is still hope for rescue and redemption, and that God has not left us to ourselves. So here is the message. Here's the nutshell. Here's what we're going to take away. Everyone is completely lost, but everyone who clings to Christ is completely restored. Everyone is completely lost, but everyone who clings to Christ is completely rescued. So let's start with looking at verses 10 through 18. Paul writes in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he pens these words. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the word of the Lord. Paul makes his argument, and this whole section of chapter 3 is, is quoting different parts of the Old Testament. And he is saying, he's saying, he's like, I'm not making this up. This isn't just my opinion. This is the whole Bible that has been telling us this truth. And the, the Bible is not some guidebook to tell you how to live your life. The Bible is not three practical steps to a better marriage. It's none of that. It is a, the Bible is a story whose first point is to show us our great need for rescue and to constantly point us to the one who does the rescuing. Uh, me and my kids have been reading the Chronicles of Narnia. Praise the Lord. Amen. Okay. And uh, we, started, we just started the book, second book, and uh, they asked me, they're like, who's the main character of these books? I said, well, who do you think it is? And we talked, well, I think it's Lucy. I talk about Narnia, I somehow go into a British accent. I don't know, I'm sorry. They're like, I think it's Lucy. Well, I think it's Mr. Tomness. As we talked about it, it's like, no. No, it's the lion. It's Aslan. And if you've not read Narnia, you didn't understand that illustration, shame on you. Go home and read Narnia. And we look at the Bible, and sometimes we read it and go, oh, I'm the main character, right? right? Isn't it about me? And it helpful, it's helpful to realize it's about, the, it's about you and only in the sense that you're the one who needs rescue. But it points us to a great Savior. So, to sum up those verses we just read, we would say it this way. The whole of who we are has been broken by sin. The whole of who we are. It means there's not one piece or part of us that is not tainted and affected by the fall. The whole of who we are is broken by sin. So what I want to do in this first section is, is quickly point out seven effects of sin. Here's my seven subpoints. Seven effects of sin according to these verses. So hold on tight. Here we go. One, first effect of sin is our legal standing before God, our legal standing. He says, no one is righteous, no, not one. And so lest anyone think uh, that they are the exception in chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul wants to make it clear that he himself 
The guy writing, the apostle, and every human rightly stands guilty before God. And in a court of law where God stands as judge, and he is he's the best judge, he's good, he's righteous, he's fair, he sees clearly, he's not biased. When he judges us, he will rightly say we are guilty and deserving hell, and that is right and good for God to do. Our legal standing before God has been affected by sin. We are legally guilty. Two, sin has affected our minds. Verse 11, no one understands. He mentions this three times in chapter 1. He talks about how sin has affected the mind and affected our thinking. And sin has distorted, perverted, broken the way we think. It taints our thinking. We cannot approach truth and ever be unbiased. We can never have objectivity. Sin clouds the truth. Our selfishness, our desire to be right, our desire to get what we want or to get what we think will make us happy clouds our thinking, distorts our thinking, particularly and especially when it comes to understanding and thinking about God. You see, apart from God's self-revelation, his self-revealing himself to us in Jesus and through the scriptures, apart from the Holy Spirit's aid and understanding that, we would be utterly unable to understand the things of God. If God did not reveal himself to us, if God did not show himself to us in his son and his word and give us the Holy Spirit to understand those things, we would be hopeless to, to interpret and get it correct. No one understands. Our thinking is futile. Three, our motives. Verse 11, no one seeks God. C.S. Lewis said of himself, the guy who wrote Narnia, said of himself, before, speaking of before he came to Christ, he said, amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. To me, as I then was, before he became a Christian, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. Meaning, it is ludicrous to think that a mouse would ever go searching for a cat. And in the same way, apart from the Spirit of God at work in man's heart, sin has so broken humanity that mankind, left to himself, would never seek God. It has broken our motives for our wills. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The great Protestant reformer Martin Luther wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will, in which he talks about this idea of our, our wills, that is our ability to choose the good, has now been hampered and has always been hampered since Genesis 3 by sin. It doesn't mean we don't have a will. It just means that our wills, our, our choices are bound and enslaved, as the Bible would use that language, enslaved by sin, corrupted by sin. That no one can ever choose to live their life and never sin, right? Like you cannot go your whole life and choose to never sin. You can't do it because your will is bent towards sin. We love our sin when we naturally move there. Our wills are not neutral. We do not stand apart as unbiased neutral arbiters. We're not completely free. Our choices, our wills, are tainted by our love for sin. That is why the Bible speaks of us being slaves. That sin is our master, whom we feel we must obey. And apart from Christ, our will will always be enslaved to sin. 
5, our tongues. It says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Remember what Jesus said? That it is from the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So what you say really just reveals what's on the inside. What you post nowadays just reveals on what's on the inside. Even what you think just reveals on what's on the inside. We use our words to, to, to hurt. We use our words to insult. We use our words to tear people down, to bully. And it merely exposes the evil in our hearts. One of the things the Internet has done, it has removed the restraint that we had when we see and talk to someone face-to-face. Because we say things to people on the Internet that we would never say to them in real life. We text things to people that we would never say to their face because we can hide behind a screen. And all of that that we message, that we say to people, all that hatred, all that evil merely exposes what's actually in our hearts. Six, our relationships. Verse 15, their feet are, their feet are sh- uh, swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. And from the very beginning of the Bible, we get this, right? Like immediately. Sin breaks our horizontal relationships with each other. We see Adam and Eve now ashamed of their nakedness, having to hide from each other. And then their kids get jealous. Of, one of them gets jealous of the other one. And because of that, he kills them. Cain kills Abel. And so immediately in the Bible, we see these horizontal relationships broken. And you do not have to look far in your own life. You do not have to look far in, in church life to see how sin damages our relationships. When I look at moments in my life where relationships were strained or damaged, there is always a sin issue right at the forefront. Whether it be my pride or my selfishness, my ego, my my impatience, my arrogance, something about me. Sin destroys our relationships. And seven, our relationship with God. Sin messes up our relationship with God. Verse 18 he, he ends the quotations with saying, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And our sin makes us foolish because we no longer fear the Lord. We mock him. We live with no concern for what he thinks. We live as if he did not exist. So sin separates us from God. It alienates us from God. And this is Paul's big main point. It doesn't matter. If you are a religious person or a pagan. It doesn't matter if you go to church every Sunday or you sacrifice goats to the devil. It doesn't matter if you're good compared to worldly standards or bad. Sin has corrupted every part of our lives and resulted in our complete and utter separation from God. It is not that God is upstairs and we are downstairs and we just need to walk up the stairs to get to him. It is that God is on one side of the Grand Canyon. We are on the other side of the Grand Canyon. And the cavern is so vast, so wide that no human man-made bridge could ever get us from one side to the other. That's Paul's point. I want to give you two quick illustrations to to cement this in us and we're going to move on. So one, I'm going to draw something up here and you cannot make fun of my handwriting, okay? Or my spelling. I, I might spell something wrong. So, we're going to put God at the top, which is, he is ultimate goodness, right? Like, he is the standard for perfection and goodness, and this is the line. 
that marks perfection, okay? So he's ultimate goodness. And at the bottom, we've got ultimate evil, which we'll, we'll put the devil, okay, which is evil. He's bad. Y'all agree with that, right? Okay. That's, that's the line for that, okay? So now, here's what I want to do. I want us to take the, the most evil person that we could ever think of in the history of the world. Who would you say? Hitler, okay. That's, so here's my question. I'm going I'm to start here and I'm going to move down and I want you guys to yell at me where you think Hitler falls on this list. On perfection and ultimate goodness or evil, okay? So I'm going to go down. Y'all tell me when to stop. Some of y'all ain't sure. <laughs> A little further. Right there? Okay, okay. This, Hitler. All right. Now let's take the, the most moral, most upright, best person you could ever think of in the history of the world. Who do you think? Billy Graham? Mother Teresa? Mother T. Billy Graham? Okay, we'll do, we'll do Billy Graham. We'll do Billy Graham. I cannot spell Graham, so I'm just going to put Billy. All right. <laughs> Billy G. I had to look. I figured y'all were going to say Mother Teresa, so I looked it up how to spell it. And I was going to put Mother T. All right. So, Billy Graham, tell me when to stop where you think he is. Okay, okay. All right, we'll go back. Let's go right in there. Let's go right there. This, this really should be like miles long. We just, I got one sheet of paper, okay. Uh, this is Billy, Billy G, Billy Graham. Now here's my question. Where do you fall? Let's say it's somewhere, I don't think any of y'all are Hitler. And then y'all ain't Billy Graham either. So let's just say you, you, you're somewhere in here, Okay. But, here, but here's, here's my point. Billy Graham, is, Billy Graham and Mother Teresa were the best people we could think of. Best people the history of the world's ever given us. Look how, look how far. And man, if, if we really had the, to scale this, man, this, this distance right here would be galaxies long. And you're not, you're not even close to Billy. Let me say it this way. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that there was a competition uh, to see who could swim from the, from the coast of New York City to the, to the coast of Great Britain. It's 3,500 miles long. Three swimmers attempt to do it. The first one, he goes and he makes it uh, a couple hundred feet. He's not a very good swimmer. He makes a couple hundred feet and he gets tired and he drowns. Next guy's pretty good. He goes and, and he swims for a little bit longer. He, you know, he makes it two or three miles. And he begins to start tiring out. And he gives up, and he drowns. The last guy goes, and, and he's an Olympic swimmer. And he goes, and he swims for 140 miles, and he beats the world record for swimming. And, and he's still a few thousand miles short. And he gets tired about 140 miles in, and he begins to, to wane and, and, and swallow water. And then he, he sinks to the bottom and drowns. Now, what's the difference between the three? Yes, yes some of them got a little closer but they're all dead. They all drowned. None of them made it. That's Paul's point. There's no one good. Ain't nobody. 
ain't no one encroaching on that line. There is nobody who's getting close. There's no one so virtuous, so moral, so good, so religious, so holy, as if to think that God would accept them into heaven based on their merit. That person doesn't exist. In the same way, just like these swimmers all died, we are all guilty under God's law and are all equally dead in our sin. So here's, here's point one. We have seven subpoints. Here's point one. Everyone is completely lost. Everyone. Everybody falls under that line. You and I are closer to Hitler than we are to God. Everyone is completely lost. And, man, if that were the end of the story, if, if the Bible stopped at Romans chapter 3, point, you know, halfway through chapter 3, man, we would have despair. We would have no hope. We, we would be on a highway to hell with no off-ramp. But, man, that's not the end of the story, and thanks be to God for that. The, the, the bad news is not the end of the story. For the second half of Romans 3, Paul is beginning to unveil the good news. And as Paul begins to highlight this salvation, this way out, this rescue has come from Christ. I wanted to show you five aspects from the second half of this chapter of this salvation. He's just kind of giving us previews of these things. The transition begins in verse 21 where we read two wonderful words. All this bad news, all this guilt, all this condemnation he's talked about, wrath, justice, and he says, but now. All this bad news, all this hopelessness. All this guilt, but now. Those two glorious words show us that God was not willing to leave us to ourselves, but God intervened. That's the first point. God intervened. Understand, and I think this is maybe kind of hard for us to understand, but I want you to understand that God is under no obligation to offer a way of salvation to anyone. God is under no obligation. He does not have to rescue us. He is not mandated. He is not compelled by his goodness or his justice or his righteousness and come and deliver us. He is instead only compelled, not forced, but longs to rescue us by his love. His love compels him to action. He's not obligated to it. His love compels him. And so, he intervenes. He intervenes in history. Jesus comes and invades time and space. Jesus steps into our stories. He steps into our likeness. And he provides a way of rescue because the heart of God is for us. He doesn't have to, but he wants us. If God stood back and he did nothing, which he has every right to do, if he just stood back and he left us to ourselves, we would be without hope. But he intervenes our stories. He doesn't leave us hopeless. Because God intervened, we can be rescued. So first we see that God intervenes. Second, we see that the way he intervenes, the way he provides this rescue, is through a big theological word called justification. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. But now... God's intervened. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So you can't get righteousness by obeying the law. So it's, there's, a, there's a new way that it's come apart from the law. Meaning, 
we can only have this perfect goodness. We can only get to this line, get above this line, have the sort of righteousness we need to get to heaven, to be right with God. Only one way, and it is through this idea of justification. Now, what does this mean? The word justification, as we read it here, is the verb form of the noun righteous. What does that mean? So in Greek, righteous is dikaios. Y'all say dikaios. All these Greek scholars in here. And to, 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 to change the word from righteousness or righteous to justify, justification, you simply make it a verb instead of a noun. You make it dikaiosune, which means to be made righteous. The justification is this idea that God is making you. An action is an action. He is, he is making you righteous. We're going to talk about this at length next week, and so I just wanted to give you this snippet. And I want to give you two phrases that help us understand what justification is. Two phrases that help you remember. When we trust in Christ, we are justified, we are made righteous before God based on the blood of Jesus alone and not our works. So what does that mean? Two phrases. One, it means if you're justified, if you're in Christ, it means just as if I have never sinned. Just as if I had never sinned. Justification, just if I had never sinned. But it also means something else. It means just as if I had always obeyed. When you are justified by God, washed in his blood, it means God sees you as someone who has never sinned, as if he had never sinned, and someone who has always obeyed him. Everything he asked you to do, you did it perfectly. If you are in Christ, that becomes true of you. Just as if I'd never sinned, just as if I'd always obeyed. God intervenes, he justifies. The third aspect is redemption. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, we use the word redemption a lot, but I think when we use it, we use it fairly generically. We kind of use it as, as, a, as a synonym of saved, but it actually has a very specific meaning. To redeem something is to purchase it. To redeem something is to buy it. Specifically, redeem has the, the idea in mind of purchasing a prisoner of war back or the purchase of a slave's freedom. Redemption, then, is the ransom payment. It is the ransom payment made to set a prisoner of war free or to set a slave free. And so when the Bible describes humanity, it intentionally does so by saying we are slaves to sin. That we are captives. Jesus says that he came to set the captives free. It is because we are in a state of sin that we need to be ransomed, we need to be redeemed, we need to be purchased out. Someone needs to pay our ransom because we have been kidnapped, we have been bought, we are owned by someone else. See, whenever there is a prisoner of war, a, a government enters into a negotiation with that country and holds those prisoners uh, to, to, to negotiate their release. 
Maybe they ask for money. Maybe they ask for prisoners on their end to be released first. Maybe they ask for something else. But there is a price that must be paid to secure the freedom of prisoners of war. And the Bible says that the wages of sin, what sin deserves, is death. And the price on our heads, the ransom, to secure our freedom is death. And so it God is going to intervene. If God is going to justify us and make us righteous, he must first pay the price of our redemption. He must secure our freedom. He must buy us back. And to do that, he must pay the ransom on our heads. And so God must die to pay the price. And so God comes as the son. He dies on the cross to purchase us back from the hands of death itself. That's why the Bible says we were bought with a price. An amazing reality that God would spend such a high price on us is seen in Romans 5 when Paul says, look, somebody might give their life for a good person. Maybe for a righteous person someone would die. But God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still broken, he paid our ransom. While we were still rebels against his kingdom, he paid our ransom to secure our freedom. See, God, knowing the state of our hearts and lives, still thought the price of the death of his son worth it in order to purchase you back from the hands of death. God paid a price. We sing this line, I love it. God paid a price that we could never afford. You are not rich enough to pay this price. So God intervenes, he justifies, and he redeems, he purchases us back, and fourth, he provides propitiation. He provides propitiation, big theological fancy word, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Have you ever asked the question, who or what is Jesus saving me, saving us from by dying on the cross? What is Jesus saving us from by dying on the cross? Talk about him. He's saving us from our sin. He's saving us from ourselves. Saving us from the devil. But ultimately, those are secondary answers. Chapters 1 and 2 of Romans should set up our understanding of what God is saving us from. You see it? God has to send his son to die on a cross in order that God might save you from himself. From his own judgment, from his own wrath. Hell is not a place of the devil's torment. Hell is the place of God's justice. And if God is going to save you, he is saving you from his own righteousness, his own righteous judgment. Jesus on the cross endures torture, he endures pain, he endures humiliation. But none of that compares to this moment on the cross where Jesus is hanging there. And do you remember what he cries out? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does he say that? He says it because there's this moment 
And I don't, I don't pretend to really understand this, but there's this, there's this moment where, where God is pouring out all of the wrath, all of the judgment. The, the Bible talks about cup of wrath. He's dumping that cup of wrath, his judgment that we deserve on his son. And now the son of God who has existed for eternity in a trinity and connected to the father forever. In this moment, it's like the father has turned his back on the son. The son experiences hell. And separation from the Father, he's disconnected. And that agony is more agonizing than any of the torture, any of the humiliation, any of the suffocation, drowning on his own blood. It's worse than all of that. As he is separated from God as we deserve to be. He takes hell on the cross. Cut off from God. Cut off from the Father. You see, he's a propitiation. That he goes to satisfy the wrath and judgment of God. He is the sacrifice. This is what a propitiation means. That he is the sacrifice that bears the punishment and wrath that we rightly deserve. He takes our place. He bears our judgment for us. God saves us from himself by pouring out his judgment on himself. Because Jesus is fully God, right? He's not like half God. He's not Hercules. Jesus is God, and so God pours out his wrath on himself in order to save you. And now, because of this, we can truly say and truly believe that our sin when we're in Christ is cast as far as the east is from the west. Finally, we see that our salvation is also a demonstration. Verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, what does this mean? Well, first, how is it possible that God saved anyone in the Old Testament before Jesus came? How is it that, that David and Abraham and Moses and Noah and all of these you know, heroes, quote-unquote, of the faith in the Old Testament, all these guys, how is it that they are saved? Was it by sacrificing lambs in the temple? Was it by keeping the law? See, God took all of the sins that David incurred, all of the sins that Abraham incurred, all of the sins that Noah and Moses incurred, and he held them, and he waited. And all those lambs that were slain, all those bulls and goats that were slain, did nothing but point to the one in whom Jesus, God could drop the floodgate on his son. And so David... Abraham and all these Old Testament guys are saved by their faith and the one who would come to bear the wrath of God on their behalf. And all those lambs that were slain for thousands of years merely pointed forward. You see, the cross is a demonstration that God is both a judge who cares enough about the world to set standards and hold the world accountable to them. It is the cross is a reminder that God is just, that he is righteous, that he is good, and he will not lower the bar one centimeter. Because if he lowered it one centimeter, he would cease to be good. He would cease to be righteous, cease to be just. So he holds the standard. 
So the cross is a demonstration that he holds a standard, that he is a judge, and that he will hold us accountable. But it's also a demonstration that he is the justifier, meaning he is the one who will extend forgiveness, extend mercy, and restore us. And it's only possible at the cross because at the cross we see both justice and mercy. That mercy comes through judgment. Mercy comes through this justice. We only get mercy and grace because judgment has been satisfied. It's been paid. God has kept his word that he will be just and punish sin, but he has also shown his love and that he made another way for us to be rescued. So here is the point I want you to take away from all of this. Just as Paul showed us for two and a half chapters that everyone is completely lost, our hope comes in that everyone in Christ. Notice, everyone is completely lost. There's no exclusion. Everyone is completely lost. But it is only everyone in Christ. By faith alone. Grace alone. Everyone in Christ is completely rescued. Completely rescued. You see, there is not one aspect of our need that God has overlooked. He has completely and utterly and fully saved us who are in Christ. He has left nothing to chance. He has not missed a detail. He has not missed a sin of yours. He has from beginning to end fully and completely rescued us wholly from our sin, from death and from judgment and from himself. He has saved us, delivered us, redeemed us, and made us new and made us whole, made us his own. And I love the question Paul anticipates in verse 27 after he's talked about all of this. He says, then what becomes of boasting? If all of this is true, what you've just said, Paul, he anticipates this question. Then what can I be proud of? What can I be proud of? Where can I take credit? Where can I see my accomplishments, my effort, my ability? Where can I boast? And if you understand what Paul has been getting at, and that you see that you are completely saved and delivered and rescued by the sheer mercy and grace and love and kindness of God, that he has done it from beginning to end, you see why he anticipates this question. If God has done it all, Can I still boast? Can I still be proud? Can I pat myself on the shoulder and say, good job? Do I get some measly amount of credit? No. You get no credit. Which is wonderful news. Which is amazing news. It might seem like a bad thing, but it's incredibly helpful. Because now, Now, because none of us can boast, none of us can take credit, none of us gets any more or less credit than anyone else, so now no one is looking up at other people, no one is looking down at other people. Instead, we all together in the same boat look up and behold the mercy and kindness and love and majesty of the face of a Redeemer and Savior who would rescue us completely, which means... You can stop looking at yourself and your ability to be good, your ability to be holy. You can stop judging your relationship with God based on your own righteousness, your own effort, your own ability to be good. You can stop doing that and you can rest. Be holy to Savior who once he has you will never let go. And you can, you can let go of the shame you've been holding for years. Because you don't have to make up for it because Jesus. 
Everyone is completely fallen, and everyone in Christ is completely rescued by him and him alone. And so all praise and worship and honor and glory go to him. All credit, all boasting goes to him. There is this old Christian tradition that churches and followers of Jesus have been doing for 2,000 years, and it is an incredibly simple thing, but the truth it contains is incredibly powerful. You see, we stand... This morning with those who have come before us and who have eaten this bread and drank this drink. And in the taking of this feast that we're about to partake, we are acknowledging that it took the body of God to be broken. And it took the blood of God to be spilled in order to purchase us back from the hands of death. When we take this meal, we own that we are sinners and we are beholding a marvelous Savior. You see, this is a powerful meal. Not because there is any power in food, but because of the truth to which this meal points. As we take this meal in faith, faith in the Lord Jesus, faith in a boast in a crucified, risen Christ, we are reminded that our sin was buried in the ground 2,000 years ago. Our sin was buried in the ground with a dead corpse of a Messiah. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, our sin wasn't raised with them, but it stayed there. Our our Savior put our sin to death. And so there are many ways and many attitudes with which to take this meal this morning. But this morning, let us take this meal in celebration. Because Jesus has completely and utterly and fully rescued us. Because his victory is our victory. And so we gather and we take this meal as a serious but joyful affair. Because this feast is an act and declaration of war. And celebrating this feast, we declare that sin has been defeated by our great Savior. Our enemy has been vanquished and a new creation is coming. And so if you cannot take this meal this morning, if you cannot celebrate like that in Christ this morning because you do not belong to Jesus, then I implore you, don't take this meal. Instead, take a hold of Christ. He stands waiting. Waiting for you to stop thinking you're good enough. Waiting for you to stop living in ignorance that he's real. Waiting for you to stop clenching so tightly to the chair in front of you and make a beeline to somebody who can show you how to put your trust in Christ and stop trusting in yourself. If you are here this morning and you cannot take this meal because you do not belong to Jesus, don't take this meal if you do not belong to Jesus, but take Christ instead. I'm going to be standing in the back, man, if that's you, man, come grab me. If you're here this morning and you are a parent with an unbelieving, unbaptized child, show them the gospel through your celebrating and taking this feast, but do not allow them to participate in something to which they do not yet belong. I'm going to ask the deacons and the band to go ahead and come forward as we prepare to pass out this meal, to pass out these elements. I want you to understand as they pass it out, you're going to take this one container. It's got a cracker on top and juice inside. Hold it. Wait. Hold it, and as we sing, and as it's being passed out, I want you to reflect and think about and ponder the good news of Jesus. And then I'm going to come back up in a few minutes, and we will feast together as one family, one body, celebrating one awesome Savior. Let's pray. Father, this morning we gather as your people.
and we ask and we pray first for those in this room who, who are not in your son, who, are, who do not belong to you. Maybe they're religious. Maybe they think they're a good person. Maybe they've grown up in church. But, man, God, there's never been a moment where they gave their whole life to you as their king, confessed their sin, have been made whole and received forgiveness. God, if they're here this morning, whether they're 8 years old or 80 years old, God, give them the strength to make a beeline to me as I stand in the back. That we might rejoice together as they cling and trust in you for the first real time. But for those this morning that have trusted in you and have been walking this walk of faith, you encourage us as we celebrate victory that we never lifted a hand to accomplish, but victory that was been given to us through a broken body and spilt blood and through a resurrection from the dead. Pray these things in Christ's name. All those people said.